Good morning. If you would turn your Bible to Exodus 34. Thank you, Adam, orchestra, choir, for leading us in worship this morning, preparing us for worship through the preaching of the Word of God. When I began this kind of this series in the Old Testament, just taking pertinent passages, I never envisioned I was never going to get out of Exodus. I skipped Genesis purposely because we'll be looking at Genesis starting on Sunday nights in November. But we're just looking at text. All Scripture is equally God-breathed. All Scripture is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient. But there are texts that Paul would describe as of first importance. And so we've been looking at some of these texts, and today we look at one that perhaps may be, if not the most important, um, one of the most important passages on the doctrine of God in the Old Testament. And that is in Exodus 34. If you look with me, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses this morning. This comes off the debacle where Moses comes down the mountain and they're making that golden calf in their idolatrous pursuits and he has broken the law. He slammed the law down, which was kind of a symbol that they had broken God's law, breaking the first commandment. And the Lord pulled back. He, he decided not to bring judgment on them because of the intercessions and the mediation of, of Moses. So here we are in Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Because God is holy and it's dangerous to be holy. It's dangerous for people who are not holy to be in the presence of the one who is holy. And so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed, notice the Lord is preaching. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the Lord proclaims the name of the Lord. It's as if there is a plurality in the Godhead. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. He's preaching about the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then notice Moses' response. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, we come to such an important passage that teaches us uh, something of the nature critical of who you are, and we, we just pray that as we come to this passage, your spirit would give us eyes to see, to gaze upon 
your all-sufficient beauty and glory. And may we be transformed by it. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. William Montague was a, a young aristocrat who was struck blind at the age of 10. Well, flash forward several years. He was in graduate school, and he met a young lady who was the daughter of a British admiral. admiral and they got, they got engaged. Well, before they got married, he found out about this new surgery that could potentially restore his eyesight. So against hope, he had the surgery, but he instructed his family, I do not want the bandages removed from my eyes until the day of the wedding when my bride walks the aisle. I want the first thing I see, if I can see, to be her. And so he had the surgery, and then they bandaged him up, and on the day of the wedding, she walked the aisle, and his father walked over to him, and he began to unwrap his head, and on the last bandage, he takes it off, he takes it off Montague's head, and lights stream in, lights flood, and he sees his bride, the first sight he had seen since he was 10 years old. He began to cry, and he got face to face with her, and he said, you are more beautiful than anything I could have ever imagined. Well, something like that happens for every single person who was once spiritually blind, and that, that describes us all. And what does it mean to be spiritually blind? You don't see your need for a Savior. You don't see the beauty. You don't see the glory of God. That was me for 23 years. I had physical eyes, but I didn't have spiritual eyes. And then by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and by conversion, repentance, and faith, we are given eyes to see the beauty and the glory of God. But that's not a one-time event. Paul says that is the earmark of the normal Christian life. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, he describes not a special class of believer. He describes all Christians as those who are beholding the Lord and doing so unlike the old covenant people of God with unveiled faces. Isn't that beautiful? 2 Corinthians 3.18. In fact, sanctification, now what is sanctification? It's our growth in godliness. It's our, it's our growing conformity to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification comes only as we behold. It comes only as we see, as we gaze upon the glory of God. Growth in godliness, perseverance in faith is the fruit of seeing and savoring. That's what Paul tells us. In other words, it's not only the believer's greatest need daily, it is to be constant. Now, Moses knows this. He knows this. And, and Moses is in a situation right now that's very difficult. He's been called to lead a people who are very prone to idolatry. 
As, you have, as we've seen in the book of Exodus, uh, these people uh, have short memories about the greatness of God, and they tend to grumble, they tend to complain, they tend to revolt, and they tend to fall into idolatry. Moses is in a very difficult place as a leader. How will he persevere in this? Well, he knows. Well, back in chapter 33, right off the heels of that sacred calf debacle, Moses pleads, notice in verse 18, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. It is in beholding the glory of God is Moses' only chance in persevering as a man of God and as a leader. Show me your glory. Now, he's already seen it. He saw God's glory at the burning bush. He has seen it already at the top of the mountain with the 70 elders. He has already seen it in God's work of redemption. He has seen it from one miracle after another, and yet he longs. Indeed, he needs to see it more and more. And God agrees. Notice in verse 20 of chapter 33, he agrees that he will reveal his glory, but he warns, you cannot see my face and live. Moses was only a man. He was a great man. He was a great leader, but he was only a man. He was a sinner like every single one of us, and therefore he could not bear a direct sight of this holy God. So the Lord allows him to see his back as he passes. Notice verse 33. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And Moses sees what he had been longing for. Something no man had ever seen before. The passing glory of God. But as, as important as a physical sight of God was... There's something even more important. The greatest demonstration of the glory of God was not in having a physical sight of him. It was in him revealing to Moses who he is. And we get to eavesdrop on that because it's been inscripturated into the word of God. Now the first thing we see here in our passage, God's glory revealed in his condescension. Now what does it mean when we use the word condescension. I give you this word because it's important. It's the voluntary descent from a superior to an inferior. The voluntary descent from a superior to an inferior being. We see in this first part of this passage, God's glory revealed in his condescension to Moses. Look with me in chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses... Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, which I think is a double entendre there. Moses actually broke the tablets, but Moses representing the people, the people of God broke the law. They are lawbreakers. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. That's holy space. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning. He is being obedient to the Lord. 
And he went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Now, if you were to say to me that so-and-so was condescending to me, that would not be a compliment. What you would be saying is that person was demeaning to me. So in one sense, condescension is not a good thing. But theologians use the language of condescension in a different way. The Lord is transcendent. That is, he's exalted. He is above all earthly powers. He is above all creation. And he is in need of nothing. He is self-sufficient. And so when he comes to us, that is a gracious condescension where he comes and he reveals himself to us. Now I want you to note here, Moses is at the top of this holy mountain and still God must descend to Moses. That's how high and exalted he is. The Lord's revelation of himself is his, as Carl F.H. Hendry has often said, his gracious forfeiting of his personal privacy so that we who do not deserve to know him might know him. That is God's revelation. And that comes through his gracious and infinite condescension. So that's the first thing we need to see here. But we're not going to spend a lot of time here because verses 6 and 7 are the heart of the passage. And so we see God's glory revealed in this remarkable condescension to Moses. But in the second part of this passage where we're going to spend most of our time, we see God's glory revealed in the unveiling of his name. This is so very vital for us that we might know him. Now look with me in the second part of verse 5. So the Lord descended and stood with him there and notice he preached. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So again, Moses has asked the Lord, show me your glory. And what does the Lord do to reveal to him his glory? He preaches. He preaches a sermon about himself. Martin Luther called verses 6 and 7 a sermon on the name. I love that. Indeed, notice the first part of this sermon the Lord, the Lord. Now, this is the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. Remember when the Lord revealed himself at the burning bush and, and he commissions Moses to go to Pharaoh to let my people go? And Moses asked him, what, what is your name? Now, he was asking more than just a, some denotative um, description of God. He wanted to know what kind of God are you? And Moses, 
hears from the Lord, this is my name forever. I am the Lord. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. Which tells us that we will never get past that reality. The most important reality of who this God is, he is Lord. Which means he has, in his covenant relationship with his people, he has the rights of authority and power. He comes to us by his covenantal presence. He is Lord. And so now, Moses in asking, show me your glory, the Lord is now going to expound on what it means that he's Lord. And he's going to give him seven attributes. The Lord is going to reveal to Moses here in this sermon seven attributes about what it means that he's Lord. That's why this passage is so important for us. And in these seven attributes, six of these are kind of like descriptions of his benevolence to his people. And one, a description of justice. All of which describe his lordship. So let's walk through these together. The first thing we see, and again, all of these attributes are benefits to every believer here. That's why we need to muse upon them. Every single attribute that he describes in this sermon about himself is a benefit to every believer. And so to those who are in need, if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you're in need, this is a word for you. He is a God who is merciful. Now in one sense, I've heard mercy described as God not giving us what we deserve. And I think that is a is a good description, but it's not a a comprehensive description of mercy. There's clearly more to it than that. Uh, Louis Burkhoff is helpful in, in defining mercy as the goodness or the love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress irrespective of their hearts. In other words, they don't deserve it. But God gives that mercy to them anyway. Now, in our country, it is hard for many of us to really revel in the mercy of God. Why? Because mercy is only appreciated for those who were in distress. If the pandemic has benefited us in any way, uh, it has awakened many people uh, to their real condition. Uh, One of my friends, Juan Sanchez, who pastors in Austin, Texas, tells of having a a pastor from the Middle East come and preach to his church. And this this particular preacher uh, pastored a church in in a place where it's illegal to be a Christian, in one of the Islamic states, one of the most physically dangerous places in the world. And this preacher stands up in... A church in Austin, Texas, where it's pretty safe to be a Christian. Maybe people raise their eyebrows at you, but it's pretty safe to be a Christian. Here's what he said. He said, the U.S. is the most dangerous place in the world to raise children. Now, that shocked a lot of people in Austin, Texas. The U.S. is the most dangerous place in the world to raise raise children. What he was saying there is that there are some things more dangerous than physical danger. And, and, and this, 
this struck a chord with me because back when I was an intern here, 2000, the year 2000, we went to Ghana. The interns went to Ghana, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, West Africa. And I remember thinking that I was Billy Graham. Um, someone would sneeze, I'd say, God bless you, and they'd get saved. I mean, it was just, it was incredible. Uh, we would go door to door, and they would let us in, and, and every single family that we knocked on their door, they, they just welcomed us, and they heard us present the gospel to them, and, and, and there was such warmth and receptivity. Um, and, and so I was talking to my pastor that I met over there named Dunfei, who had spent some time in the States, and I said, Dunfei, I said, it, it is utterly remarkable how receptive these people are to the gospel. I said, in America, it's not that way. He said, well, let me tell you the difference. He says, there is a curse on the creation, and that is universal. And there is a curse on creation in, in Ghana. That's why we have plagues, and that's why we have famines, and, and that's why we have natural disasters. But there's also a plague there's a curse on creation in the United States, and that's why you have tornadoes and hurricanes and, and, and natural disasters. There's a curse on creation. And it's equal so, equally so in the United States as much so as in Ghana. He said, here's the problem. The people in the United States don't believe that. Because of health and wealth and entertainment, those masking agents have covered up the real need. Our people see that need every day of their lives. And so when they read about the mercy of God, it provokes worship in them. And so when we read about the mercy of God, if we're seeing with clear eyes, it should cause us to bow. It should cause us to worship. But secondly, notice to those who fall short and don't measure up, he abounds, notice, in grace. Again, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So mercy and grace travel together. Uh, it has been said that mercy is God not giving of what you deserve, and grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. And there's some truth to that. But God, his grace is his unmerited gifts at the expense of himself where he resources our needs. He resources them at personal cost, including when we fall short of the glory of God. John Blanchard says, daily need, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. And for overwhelming need, there is overwhelming Overwhelming grace. He offers grace. He offers forgiving grace for those who have broken his law. He offers cleansing grace for those in sin. He offers empowering grace in our pursuit of holiness. Crowning grace for those who are on their deathbed. Indeed, this Lord who is preaching a sermon about himself says there's something fundamental about me, Moses. I am a God of mercy. I am a God of grace. But third, notice, to those who are prone to wander or 
are prone to rebellion. He, notice it says he is slow to anger. Now this speaks to his patience. In fact, if God was not patient, not a single person would be sitting here. God was patient with me, I know. And for you, God has been patient, or you wouldn't be here today. God is patient. He is forbearing. Uh, The implication here is that the Lord's immediate response to any offense is forbearance rather than judgment. Now, we need to be careful about confusing his forbearance with indifference. But that's another sermon for another day. Here we see the Lord is patient. So just because he has not dropped the bomb on you for your your present rebellion does not mean he's indifferent to it. It just means he's patient with you. I love what Tom Watson, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said about this. This is so eloquent I had to, to put it on the screen for you. The bee naturally gives honey. It stings only when it's provoked. Just so, God does not punish until he can bear no longer. The most mysterious aspect of the mystery of sin isn't that we deserve to die, but rather why we in the average situation continue to exist. After all, what king, what ruler would display so much patience with a rebellious populace? In fact, God is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We too easily forget that his patience is designed to lead us to repentance. But instead of taking advantage of this patience by humbling ourselves, we abuse his grace as an opportunity to become more bold in our sin. And when the Lord reveals his patience to Moses, he is giving that to us to melt us, to, to, to provoke humility and love and gratitude, not to give you a ticket to continue in your rebellion. Notice as well, the fourth thing about this Lord in this passage, and this is to natural self-lovers, Who are the natural self-lovers in this room? Every hand could be raised. That's who we are by nature. To natural self-lovers, notice, abounding in steadfast love. Now that's remarkable. Abounding in steadfast love. Now I want us to think about this word abounding first of all. This means that he is unlimited in his resources for his people. Now, when I think about this word abounding, it, it has the idea of a flood. Now, I, I, I went to high school in Enterprise. One of my old teammates is here today. Uh, both of us were starters on that defense, and it was a dangerous defense. That's another time, another. <laughs> but I grew up in Enterprise, but I, I, or I went to high school in Enterprise, I grew up in Elba. And Elba, is known among other things, we were saluted on Hee Haw one time, but we were known among other things for our floods. There was a devastating flood in 1929 
There was another devastating flood in 1990 and in 1994 and in 1998. The P River would flood and just subsume the town because the levee couldn't hold it. This word abounding has this idea of flood. But instead of water, instead of destructive water, it's his steadfast love that floods those who believe. Abounding steadfast love. Isn't that beautiful? Now, what is this steadfast love? Well, I'm going to give you the Hebrew word. I don't tend to think that's helpful in the pulpit, but it's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. In fact, it's found in 247 verses of the Old Testament. In the ESV, it's translated steadfast love. It's, it's translated in various ways because there's not a direct English equivalent for the word. But the word is hesed. You would spell it in, in English, H-E-S-E-D. He abounds in hesed. He abounds in steadfast love. Now, what does this mean? It's a word that speaks to God's unswerving commitment to his covenant people. That's what this means. It's his commitment to his promises. It's covenant love. It is resolute loyalty to the people to whom he has pledged himself. And he will use all the resources of deity to give us what we need to bless us. That's what steadfast love is. Many believe it's the most important word in the Old Testament. The idea here is that the greatest of all beings of whom I have no right to receive anything but judgment gives me everything. He abounds in steadfast love. In spite of how fickle we are, how inconsistent we are as believers, the Lord abounds in steadfast love. The levy of our hardened hearts is consistently overcome by the flood of this covenant faithfulness, this steadfast love. What's he doing here? He's seeking to melt our hearts. But notice as well, he abounds in faithfulness. How often do you see steadfast love and faithfulness in the Old Testament? They, they're like insecure people who can't travel without each other. God's steadfast love and his faithfulness always travel together. Again, the Hebrew word is emet. You may spell that word in E-M-E-T. In other words, the Lord always is faithful to abound in his steadfast love. So the, the prophets constantly stress God's hesed, his faithfulness, even when Israel is unfaithful. In other words, his hesed and his faithfulness will win out in the end over the hardness of our hearts. That brings us to the fifth description here. Again, he can't get past this. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. So he repeats that word for covenant love, hesed. It is the ground of our hope because it's rooted in the promise of God. Now I think this passage very well could have been the passage that Jeremiah was reflecting on in Lamentations 3. You know Lamentations 3, uh, Jeremiah is, is looking over uh, a, a judged 
city of Jerusalem. It has been devastated by the Babylonians. And the reason it's been devastated by the Babylonians is because Israel broke covenant with God after all these warnings from the prophets. And so Jeremiah is looking over a devastated Jerusalem, and here's what he reflects on. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord, that word hesed, never ceases. In spite of what I see, in spite of what I feel, I'm going to trust the promises of God over what I see. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. He abounds in steadfast love. He abounds in faithfulness. That brings us to the sixth description here. To the sinful. And that includes every single person here. It says he's forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, there's no need to, to define what iniquity, transgression, and sin is. Essentially, what he's saying here is that the Lord forgives all manner and all intensity of sin. There's no degrees, there's no types of sin that the Lord will not and cannot forgive. I'm a walking testimony of that, and most of you are here as well. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. There is nothing that we can do in our past, in our present, that is beyond God's willingness and power to forgive. A few years ago, I was in Louisville, and one of my church members called me and said, there's a young girl who tried to commit suicide, and she's at a Baptist hospital. Would you go see her? I didn't know her, but I went over there, and she was in the psychiatric ward. And, and so I told the nurse, she's not expecting me. I'm a pastor, but I would love to see her. Well, she went back to get permission from the young girl. And I walked into the room, and she was a beautiful young girl, about 20 years old. Looked like she had everything going for her. But her arm was wrapped up. She had, she had cut her wrist. And so they had wrapped it up with bandages. And the first thing she said to me, she said, Pastor... God will never forgive me. And I said, now, why will God not forgive you? And she used interesting language that, that let me know she had some kind of religious past. She said, I harmed my temple. I said, so let me ask you a question. I said, do you believe that what you did was sinful? She says, I do. I said, I'm going to ask you another question. Do you believe that what you did was ungodly? She said, yes. I said, I'm going to ask you one more question. Do you believe you're ungodly? And she said, yes. And I said, congratulations. You're qualified for forgiveness. Because that's the only ones that God forgives. Romans 4, 5 says he justifies the ungodly. That's what the Lord is saying about himself here. He forgives all manner of sin. Many people 
They're too shameful to come to God. They just can't believe he would ever forgive them for what they've done or are doing. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, if you have been tracking so far, the natural question you might have raised, this sounds like the Lord indulges sin. He indulges sin. I mean, all this talk about grace and all this talk about mercy and, and uh, his, his forbearance, his patience, his forgiveness, it sounds like the Lord indulges sin. And yet in all this, and this is so very important for us all, the Lord does not grant amnesty. Do you know what amnesty is? Someone who receives something um, through no cost of anyone else. Um, he does not indulge sin, in other words. The Lord does not indulge sin. That brings us to the final point of this description. The seventh thing we see about this Lord, this is to the guilty, who will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, no sin will avoid punishment. Not one sin. All sin will be judged. Imagine a world, and we don't have to, we don't have to imagine too strongly in, this, in these days in our country. Imagine a world where no crime is penalized. No judge crim, uh, criminalizes or punishes sin or crimes. Well, that kind of world would not be a good world to live in, would it? And the reason it would not be a good world to live in is because the judge isn't good. And therefore, you would have chaos and evil reigning. But the Lord is a good judge. And his just judgments are the hope of the world. Indeed, notice, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this is a hard text at face value. What does he mean here? And is this consistent with other places? So, for instance, Ezekiel 18.20, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Ezekiel is telling us that I am not responsible for the sins of my father. I am not responsible for the sins of a previous generation. Now, there's some in our culture who are saying we are, but it, that is not what the Scriptures teach. So what gives here when the Lord says about himself that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children? This is not a contradiction. So what is going on here? Well, Ezekiel is speaking about a son who does not follow in the steps, in the iniquity of his father. But Exodus is referring to children who do. And that is sobering. Sin is like a contagious disease. Our children don't suffer because we have it. They have it from us they get it from us because it's contagious, and then they suffer because they have it. And so, 
If you're raised in a home that's filled with slander and gossip, the generational patterns that generally are played out mean that your children will gossip and slander. If you're filled, if you if you live in a home that is filled with pornography, it is very likely your children will follow that pattern. If you are raised in a home where the things of God you're just indifferent to, it's very likely that your children will follow that pattern. And so we are reminded here of the generational effects, not the generational curse, the generational effects of the sins, the parents' pattern in the home. Sin is costly. It is dangerous. And so now Moses is at the end of this sermon, and he has a deeper knowledge of God. But it's likely if you have been following me, you have some confusion here. There is a a tension in this passage that seems almost insolvable. How can this Lord be merciful and gracious and patient? How can this Lord abound in steadfast love and faithfulness and forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet he by no means clears the guilty? A real tension has developed here. And then add to that, there is no child of Adam who isn't guilty. We all stand indicted here. Unfortunately, most people aren't concerned with that question. If you, if you uh, evangelize in Auburn, uh, you, you come to realize fast that, that most people are not concerned with that question. C.S. Lewis points out, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. But mere time does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of sin. No, time does nothing. Nor does God function like an unscrupulous janitor who at the end of the day when no one's watching just sweeps our sins underneath the rug. Indeed, earlier in Exodus 23, 7, here's what God says, I will not acquit the wicked. I will not acquit the wicked. In fact, Romans 1.18, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Those are serious words. So what gives that this God can simultaneously forgive our sin and punish our sin at the same time? Such a tension. And at first glance, it seems like a contradiction. Well, let me give you two related answers as we close this out. One of those answers I'm going to glean from Joel and Jonah. Now, why would I glean from them? Because they use this passage in their answer. In Joel chapter 2, verse 13, Joel pleads with the people, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What does that remind you of? He's reflecting on this sermon the Lord just preached about himself. And it says, he relents over disaster. And then in Jonah 3, 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, that's the Ninevites, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But notice, it displeased Jonah. Why did it displease Jonah? Because he hated the Ninevites. And he knew what kind of God God was. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful. Where did he get that from? Exodus 34. He's been reflecting on the sermon that the Lord preached about himself. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So part of the answer to this tension is repentance. So God brings judgment on sinners, and yet he, he offers forgiveness for our transgressions and sins. Part of the answer to that tension is that we must repent of our sins. We, we can't come to God on our terms. We have to come to him on his terms, which is actually good for us because our sins decreate us in a sense. They dehumanize us. They're not the way God intended us to be and live. Be like a fish deciding to live out of water. It may appear that that fish has freedom, but he's enslaved to death, even though it appears he has freedom. So part of the answer is repentance. But even our repentance is volatile, isn't it? It's ever-changing. It's not consistent. It's weak. It's weak repentance. It's not perfect repentance. And even our repentance is a gift. And so this tension that we have seen in this passage can only be resolved not by us, who do have the responsibility to repent, but by the one who can fulfill the terms of the law in a way that God can remain faithful to his person as holy and just and yet faithful to his promises that he will save a people. I think Paul was reflecting on this in Romans 3, 24 and following when he says we are justified freely by the grace which is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth to be a propitiation for our sins. So God set forth Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins. God has to judge our sin. But rather than judging us, he judges us in the substitute, Jesus Christ. And then it says that he might be just. He doesn't compromise his person and justifier. He does not compromise his promises. He is just and justifier by judging the son in our place. And that's why John Stott's words are so incredibly important. I think these words are worthy of memorization, like a good poem. But these words are so profound to the gospel. John Stott says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. May, uh, God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties. 
that belong only to man alone. And there is the answer to the tension of Exodus 34. And it's in beholding this God who is, who is gracious, who is merciful, who is patient, who abounds in steadfast love, who abounds in faithfulness, that he is so wise that he could devise a plan to forgive our sins while at the same time not excusing or overlooking our sin. What a Savior. That's the Lord's sermon to Moses. It's a sermon to us. And those who behold this love, you know what happens? It, it, it changes us. We become that what we behold. We become more gracious with people. We become more merciful with people. We become more gentle with people. Thanksgiving and gratitude become our calling card. That's how the people of God are to function in unity. We're also forbearing with fellow sinners because God was forbearing with us. We're not impatient with them. God wasn't impatient with us or we'd be doomed. We forgive 70 times 7. We also want others to know this, Lord. When you have beheld this kind of God and you realize you're the beneficiary of this kind of God, you want others to know this God. You know that he does not clear the guilty, but you also know that he forgives transgressions and sins. And so it creates in you an evangelistic impulse, and you see yourself as a missionary. So when God places you, for instance, in the Auburn school system, you see yourself first and foremost not as a teacher or an administrator. You see yourself as a missionary. When God places you at a fast food restaurant to work, the counter, you see, see yourself not as working cashier, you see yourself as a missionary. Because you see, this is the God who forgives. And the wonderful thing about this this morning is that, as we've already seen, he forgives the ungodly. And all of us are ungodly by nature. And there are some here today, though, have, may have never tasted and seen the forgiveness of God, that he is good in that way. And I want to offer you an opportunity to repent of your sin this morning and to trust in Jesus. So as Adam comes forward, we're going to have uh, pastors here at the end of the aisle. Um, the scripture teaches us that God forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins, but he does so at his personal cost. As we've seen, he set forth his son as our substitute. So no matter what you've done, what you're doing, the Bible says where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. If you will trust in Jesus, if you will repent of your sins and flee to Christ and what he did for you on the cross and in his resurrection, your sins will be forgiven, past, present, and future. You will be a child of God. We want to give you an opportunity to, that, uh, to make that decision this morning as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.